Hello and welcome. I am Joel McReynolds, and you are listening to my preaching podcast. I have the opportunity to share from God's Word, and want to share God's message not only with the congregation of the churches I preach in, but also with you. You can find out more information about me on my website, joelmcreynolds.com, where you can also check out my blog. For now, I hope God speaks to you through today's message. Sixty-six names. You may be related to some of those names. If you go to the grounds of the county courthouse, there stands a granite pillar. It's approximately eight feet tall. It was dedicated in 1960. And list the names of those who died from Lincoln County in World War One, World War Two, Korea, and Vietnam. It stands as a testament of the amazing act of love and service to our country, of each of those individuals named therein, the Lincoln County War Memorial. Why do we have memorials? Why do we have monuments and memorials created? They can reflect societal values. They can tell important stories. And they can remind us of the great powers those intangible things that we can't feel or touch, but we see demonstrated like courage and valor, love and service. They serve as a reminder that history is not just in books, but history is all around us. And B.K. Waltke says that remembering the past plays a vital role in a people's shared identity. A society aspiring to endure must become a community not only of hope for the future, but also one of memory of the past. Last week we looked at Joshua 3, and I told you it's really part of two parts. Joshua 3 and 4 go together. And so last week the people of Israel stood on the east side of the seemingly impassable Jordan River in the spring flood season. And then God did something amazing. He caused the waters at the Jordan to heap up up by Adam so that Israel could cross over on dry land. So they were on the, the east bank then. Now Joshua 4 takes place on the opposite bank. Joshua 4 is on the western side of the river. And God has a word for Israel. He wants them to remember this amazing act that he had done on their behalf. Before we jump into this passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, you've told us in your word to keep it ever before us, to remember that you, O Lord, you are Lord, and you are Lord alone. You are the sovereign, you are the almighty. Lord, you tell us to keep our words, your word ever before us, to bind it on our foreheads, to place it before our eyes, to to write it on the doorposts of our houses. Lord, would you write it on the doorposts of our heart today? Lord, would you help us, send your spirit to help us to understand what's being said today. From your word to hear it and let it not 
return void, but to have its work in us, to transform us, to draw us closer to you, to make us a people in love with you ever more deeply. Lord, let us be a people that do not forget your mighty acts, but cherish them, remember them, memorialize them, whether in physical acts or in our own hearts. Father, speak to us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. This morning I'm reading out of the Christian Standard Version of the Bible. We're going to begin in verse number 1. We'll read through verse 9 to start. After the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua. Choose twelve men from the people, one man for each tribe, and command them, take twelve stones from this place in the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing, Carry them with you and set them down at the place where you spend the night. So Joshua summoned the twelve men he had selected from the Israelites, one man for each tribe, and said to them, Go across to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you lift a stone onto his shoulder, one for each of the Israelite tribes, so that this will be a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean to you? You should tell them, the water of the Jordan was cut off in front of the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. When it crossed the Jordan, the Jordan's water was cut off. Therefore, these stones will always be a memorial for the Israelites. The Israelites did just as Joshua had commanded them. The twelve men took stones from the middle of the Jordan, one for each of the Israelite tribes, just as the Lord had told Joshua. They carried them to the camp and set them down there. Joshua also set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan, where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. The stones are still there today. So first God says to Israel, I need you to raise some rocks. I want you to raise some rocks. As we dive into this story, the waters of the Jordan are still parted. The Ark of the Covenant is still in the middle. The priests are there holding it in the center of the Jordan or at least where the center of the Jordan would normally be. And with the exception of the two and a half tribes of the Transjordan, all the people of Israel have crossed over the dry banks, or dry land to the opposite bank. But God commands Joshua, I need you to take something with you. Remember last week we had this random seemingly verse in chapter 3 verse 12 about Joshua telling Israel to pick 12 men. And we didn't really go into it. I said it doesn't really matter for this week. We'll look more at it this week. Um, each of those 12 men, we now learn why Joshua had 12 men selected, one from each tribe. These 12 men were to carry a massive stone. Scholars believe they would have been about 100 pounds each. From the center of the river, the center of the river, with them to the place they would stay. These stones, Joshua tells them, will serve as a memorial for the Israelites. Now the Old Testament has a history of people raising rocks as testaments to the amazing things that God had done. In particular, Genesis, Jacob had a habit of making pillars of rock, raising rocks as memorials of God's amazing acts. And these raised rocks would serve as witnesses, not only for the people who were present, 
but for the generations to come as a son so that the people can tell their children what God has done. These stones that he commands them to take here are special. These aren't stones that came from the banks of the Jordan. They came from the center of the Jordan. A place that Israel would never have reached without God's mighty action taking place. And we'll, we'll come back and talk more about that in a minute. But I think the emphasis in this first part is more on the number. Just reading this passage, the number 12 is repeated several times. Each time with an emphasis that it's one for each tribe. Why is that important? Well, as Israel was entering into the land of Canaan, we, you know, actually the land of Canaan isn't just the nation of Canaan. It's called the land of Canaan, but we already saw last week that there's at least seven people groups. I told you there's actually more that we'll see as we look throughout there. So Canaan's not this strong nation. It's a, a land that has a bunch of loosely affiliated tribal peoples. These peoples that the Israelites were to come in and to conquer. But in order to do so, they must, first, they must follow God. They must go where he says. But also, they must be united. They must be together. The unity of the nations, or the nation of Israel, is of the utmost importance. As they're entering into this new land, everything that they knew was changing. No longer are they wandering around in the wilderness basically waiting for the previous generation to die out. It's a, it was a new day, it was a new people, and they had a new mission to go and to conquer the land. And I think we are in a similar position. We're in this time of transition. Uh, John Hamlin wrote, Every transition, every new task requires a renewal of the whole, undivided people of God. The very fact of change establishes the necessity for us to remember. The other day I was um, staying at my parents' house and I re-watched the, the Disney movie Moana with them, uh, with, or with my nephews. And in the, the movie, the character Moana has to travel across the sea, across the ocean, to take back the heart of Tafiti. But before she can succeed in that task, she has to learn what is called wayfinding. Well, wayfinding is an actual real skill that's still learned in the Pacific today. It is the art of sailing a boat using only your senses and your worldly knowledge. Moana specifically used the version of using star navigation in the film. She would hold up her hand and measure the stars by tracing between her thumb and her forefinger. And she would also measure the horizon. To determine her latitude. But it requires one more thing. You can know all the measurements, but you can still fail at wayfinding. But Maui tells Moana the secret. He says it's not just sails and knots. It's seeing where you're going in your mind. It's knowing where you are by knowing where you've been. So as we prepare for any potential changes that God leads us to make, we must look back together. See, change for the sake of change has no value. But change for the sake of fulfilling the mission that God has given us 
shows a positive willingness to adapt to the shifting situations around us to achieve God's will for us. And as we remember what God has done in and through this church, I think it will give us courage to move forward ahead. And we must move forward in unity of purpose and in oneness of mind. Well, let's continue reading in verse 10. The priests carrying the ark continued standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to tell the people, in keeping with all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people hurried across, and after everyone had finished crossing, the priests with the ark of the Lord crossed in the sight of the people. The Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh went in battle formation in front of the Israelites, as Moses had instructed them. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed to the plains of Jericho in the Lord's presence. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him throughout his life as they had revered Moses. The Lord told Joshua, command the priest who carry the Ark of the Testimony to come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up from the Jordan. When the priest carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came up from the middle of the Jordan, and their feet stepped out on solid ground, the water of the Jordan resumed its course, flowing over all the banks as before. So now we see they're ready to rock. They're ready to go. Now last week I mentioned that the narrative found in Joshua, and, and oftentimes in, in Hebrew uh, literature, is not linear and chronologically based. It's usually based upon a different type of structure. Well, this particular chapter has a Hebrew chiatic structure. Uh, chiastic structure, pardon. Um, what that means is it's set up kind of poetically in that something happens, there's a middle part, and then something else happens. So we just saw that the 12 men carried the stones, they sat them down, but then we jump back in the scene to the priest still in Jordan, and the people hurrying across. Like, wait a minute, we just read this, right? They, they crossed over, and now we're back to them crossing over again. But think of it like we're getting another angle on what the people saw. Before we were focused on Joshua and these 12 men, now we're back and we're focused on Joshua and the priest. So the ark, the people crossed the dry riverbed. The ark is remaining in the middle. But notice what it says in verse 12 and 13. It shows us something. There were some people, right, 40,000 people from these Transjordan tribes who crossed with the rest of Israel. Not only do we see that they crossed with them, but they led as they went into the land. Now, these people had already received their promise. They already had the land. They could have easily said, you know what, that's y'all's battle to fight. I, I don't have a dog in this fight. We've got our land. We're going to stay here and, and just chill and let y'all go on and do your thing. But Moses had told them that they would still need to help in making, taking the land. And so we see they actually held up their end of the deal so that all 12 tribes of Israel went across into the land. And all 12 tribes have a part in conquering the land. 40,000. Transjordan warriors, equipped for battle, led the rest of the people into the land. 
They were ready to go. They were ready to rock. They were prepared to fight. They had their battle armor on. And they were prepared to do so in unity together as the nation of Israel. But even though they were ready, they didn't cross the Jordan and go straight to Jericho. Rather, we'll see we, we have a whole other chapter to go before they actually get to Jericho. We still have to get through chapter 5. Instead, the people go across to the western bank, and there they paused, and there they waited. What were they waiting for? Well, the Ark of the Testimony, which is another title for the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Testimony comes out of the water. And the words testimony and covenant, they both refer to this conditional agreement that God made with the children of Israel out Mount, at Mount Sinai. <clears throat> Remember, the ark represents God's presence with Israel. His power went with them wherever they took the, the, the ark. So the power was not in the ark of the testimony itself, but it represented the presence of God who was powerful, the God who was with his people, that, that Emmanuel concept that God dwells with his people. And yeah, I didn't really talk about this last week, but they were reliant on this ark to be there as their sign that God was with them. As New Testament peoples, since the death and resurrection of Jesus, God no longer uses an ark of the testimony to dwell with his people. He dwells directly with us. We're under a New Testament. We're under a new covenant. At Pentecost, he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell every believer. And so we become his temple individually, and he puts us together in the church to become his temple corporately. So when we've been born again by faith in Christ Jesus, we take God with us everywhere we go. But that does not mean that we can just do whatever we want and God condones it. What it means is we must wait on God's leading. We must listen to the Spirit and follow where God leads us. So the people were there, they were waiting, they crossed the bank, they're prepared, they're arrayed in battle armor, they're ready to go and begin conquering, but they have to stop and wait on the ark to come back before them. And so when the priests bring the ark out of the riverbed, the river roars back, going back and resuming its natural course. Now, verse 14 seems like a weird placement in this story. It's like, okay, there's, he tells them to come up, the people come across, and then the, there's this random seeming placement of this verse that God exalted Joshua. But remember, I said it's a chiastic structure. And so it actually makes sense in the Hebrew structure to be right there in the middle. God is faithful to all of his promises, even his promise to Joshua. And Chapter 3, verse 7, God promised Joshua that he would exalt him before the people. And here we find he did. Joshua is recognized as being the new Moses. But it's not based on his skilled strategy. It's based on his spiritual leadership. Or perhaps it's better to say not his spiritual leadership, but his spiritual obedience. He just did what God told him to do and nothing more. Now, we, a lot of times, I'm, I'm kind of impatient. I'm like, okay, we're ready to go. Let's do this thing. 
And sometimes we think we're ready to rock with making some changes until we spend some significant time seeking the Lord together as his people. We're not ready. We shouldn't move on our own accord. We must spend time together as God's people seeking him in prayer, seeking his will. Paul prayed for the Colossians in chapter 1 of his letter to them. And I, I think we need to pray the same thing for ourselves. Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 says this. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. So, we as a people need to come together, we need to pray together, and we need to seek the Lord's face together. I don't have anything concrete planned yet, but be on a lookout for an announcement about a corporate prayer time that we're going to have coming soon. Give me a couple weeks to get things settled, and then we're going to have a time. I like to call it a concert of prayer, with God as our audience, coming together, lifting our prayers to Him. So look forward to that announcement coming soon. Let's continue in verse 19. The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and camped at Gilgal, on the eastern limits of Jericho. Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, In the future, when your children ask their fathers, What is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. This is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. So we see the reason for those rocks. The children are asking, why is that there? Why is that there? Here's the reason for those rocks. Now once again, the people didn't go directly to Jericho. Instead, they camped about two miles from Jericho in what they call Gilgal. Now we'll learn why it's called Gilgal next week. So come back next week for that. Can you imagine, though, the people of Jericho? Remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at the story of Rahab, and she said the people are terrified because they've heard that God led Israel through the Red Sea 40 years ago. And then they came to the, uh, the eastern border, and they defeated these kings. And then... You're sitting in Jericho, and you see two million Israelites cross the Jordan River's banks on dry ground and begin setting up an encampment two miles away from you. Talk about nerve-wracking. But we're going to find that the people stay at Gilgal for some time. In fact, Gilgal becomes the Israelites' kind of base of operations, and even much later in Israelite history, Gilgal remains an important place. It stays a, a place of sacrifices that are being offered to the Lord. And it's even the place where King Saul was crowned king. 
Unfortunately, though, the Israelites at Gilgal slipped into idolatry and Gilgal became associated with the worship of false gods. But we also see when this amazing crossing happened. This is the first we see anything specific about when this took place. It says it was in the 10th day of the first month. Is that important? Do we know why that's important? As God is commanding the people to raise these rocks in memorial, there's another memorial that is coming up. The 10th day of the first month of the Israelite year was the day that the preparations for the observance of Passover is to take place. So even as Israel is called here to create a new memorial, they prepare to celebrate an old memorial. And memorials are common throughout scriptures. Passover remembers Israelite, the, the Israel's salvation from Egypt. Later we have the Feast of Purim, right? The Feast of Purim delivers the Jews in the time of Esther. And we have memorials that God has established for us as New Testament believers. The Lord's Supper commemorates the death of Jesus. His body being broken for us. His blood being spilled out for us on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Yet even in remembering that sorrow, there's a word of hope in it. What does Scripture say? For as oft as you do this in remembrance of me, you will do it until I come back. As we take the Lord's Supper, we remember and anticipate the second coming of Christ. Once he comes back, we won't take the Lord's Supper anymore. We will sup with him. Baptism also is a memorial and a testimony. In baptism, we remember that Jesus was dead, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. It commemorates the life of the believer, what has already happened in the believer's life. When they accepted Jesus, when they believed in Jesus' name and confessed him as Lord, it demonstrates a change in their life. It signifies the crossing from the old to the new, much like Israel's crossing of the Jordan. You know, there's many gospel songs that are associate crossing the Jordan with going to heaven after you die. That's really not accurate. It's more accurate to associate crossing the Jordan with passing through the baptismal waters onto resurrection ground. It gives testimony to the Lord's power and signifies our fear of the Lord. And just like those other memorials, these rocks of remembrance... They have a greater purpose than just being something cool to look at. They're not to be worshipped in themselves. They're not to be exalted. They were to be a physical reminder of God and what he had done the day that Israel crossed the river. So that when the children looked at these stones, they would wonder, why are these stones here? It was to be a time of teaching. These stones were to prompt spiritual questions about spiritual values and the works of God. Such a memory tool is invaluable in the next generation of spiritual formation. Our children, or even just new people coming into our church, or new believers coming into our church, they need to hear of the works 
and the word of God and how it has affected you in your life. In your family, how often have your children or your grandchildren or even your great-grandchildren heard you testify to what God has done in you? How many in this church family have heard your testimony of how God saved you from your sin? As a people, we need to be a sharing people. As a community, as a church family, we need to be a people who share with one another what God is doing in our lives, and we need to exalt Him in that. There's a song that we sing. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus in His mercy, of Jesus in His love. Do we really mean it when we sing that? Are we telling the story that God has done in our lives? How, when, where can you share God's story of your life? You know, there was a, some data that came out recently. I, I just received an email about it this week. According to the Pew Research Center, for mainstream Christians, only about 35% of parents emphasize passing their faith to their children. Now, evangelicals, we rate a little bit higher. Go us, yay. <laughs> We're at about 70%. But that means that at minimum, at minimum, 30% of Christian parents ignore the spiritual directives we find in the scriptures to teach our children about God. Now, we can shake our heads when we hear that. But to whom are we as a church sharing? To whom are we teaching God's word? To whom are we passing on the stories of God's faithfulness? Adults in this room, adults, I'm talking to you. How many of you have a relationship with one of our youth students? How many of you have a relationship with these students that Chase has been pouring into over the past many years? How many of them have heard your stories? How many of you have heard their stories? How are you sharing in the testimony of what God's doing together? Friends, here's the reality. God doesn't call us to raise up memorial stones. He calls us to be living stones. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You are also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to offer up a sacrifice to the Lord of your personal time, of your personal comfort, of your personal preferences to spend time with these students, to spend time with our children and tell them about God's workings in your life, and to teach them his word. Because the goal of these rocks that were being raised, they were not just to say what happened. They were to tell the story of why it happened. They were raised for two reasons. We see there in that last verse, verse 24. This is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty. So everybody knows. Everybody, whether Christian or non-Christian, people in the church, people outside the church, everybody will know that the Lord is mighty. 
and so that you, O Israel, you may know and always fear the Lord your God. Faith and commitment to God, that's the goal. Just like the miracles of Jesus. Jesus did all kinds of miracles. And John tells us in John 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you believe Jesus, the living stone, who was rejected by his own people, but chosen by God. Do you believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Are you ready and willing to accept him? If so, he makes you a living stone being built together with other living stones in the church to be a temple for his Holy Spirit. God wants to use us to do something amazing. Are you ready for that to happen? Let's go to him in prayer. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Please subscribe to catch the latest episodes and find me on YouTube. Until next time, go out and pierce the darkness with the light of his word.